I remember the audition in that uh, Sondheim uh, corrected my grammar. Peter Gresser, this is your mixtape. Why don't we call it One Song Can Reduce You? Hello, listener, and welcome to This Is Your Mixtape, a podcast where, every episode, we take a close look at someone's life as told through music. I'm your host, Michael Collins, sentient bicep with a lot of big feelings. Today, we're chatting with Peter Gresser. Peter Gresser is a composer and occasional voice actor who lives with his husband and their incredibly old dog in suburban Los Angeles. He's written music for the soundtracks of over a dozen games, the most recent being Rex, Another Island, which is currently available on Steam. By his own admission, he's terrible at social media, and has made it his 2019 resolution to attempt to feel shame for being terrible at social media, but he makes no promises about actually trying to be better at it. Peter and I had a great chat about musical education, growing up gay, doing creative work, and the power of Bjork to change a young man's life forever. I hope you enjoy. And just a side note, I will be at PodCon in Seattle this coming weekend, January 19th and 20th, just as a civilian attending things. But if you'd like to speak with me, if you're also there, just drop me an email at mixtape at megaphonic.fm. Welcome to the show, Peter. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. So uh, for listeners who might not be familiar with you, they've heard a little bit about you in your bio, mm-hmm. but uh, why don't you tell me a little bit about your background in general? Primarily, I compose music for video games. That's uh, If people hear me, they would probably hear me from that. If they haven't heard me from that, they might occasionally hear me as a uh, voice actor. Uh, I got known for a while for doing a um, really stereotypically, um, I'm going to say, Ontario accent <laughs> for uh, Wolverine, uh, who is, of course, not from Ontario. But whatever. That's fine. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to lose points with the comic book people. Is, is he from Yukon? I, know, I mean, I know he's Canadian. Like... Uh, I think he's from BC, actually. Oh, interesting. Pretty sure he's from BC. Although, I mean, here's the thing with the background of the character. Mm-hmm. It has been changed a couple of times. Uh, there was a while there where they were trying to make him be from Australia originally. Oh, pissed. Yeah, well, because that was the 80s when uh, everything Australian was cool in America. Think Crocodile <laughs> Dundee, you know, Shrimp on the Barbie, all that jazz. So, yeah, they were trying to kind of like, actually, no. I know that it's, the, you know, Weapon X is a whole Canadian program thing, but we imported him, you know, as you do. Common <laughs> lines of import from Sydney to, you know, Toronto. Yeah, exactly. Uh huh. And Canada has always been very cool. Oh yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. So okay, you, you've done the voice of Wolverine in an Ontario accent, yep. which uh, I feel like the opportunity can't go by without me asking you to to drop that on me. Oh, okay. Well, it, it's it's really kind of a, a Bob and Doug McKenzie kind of thing, you know. Uh, kind of getting. <laughs> yeah. It, so the the truth of the matter, the the, the actual genesis of that character was mm-hmm. my mother is Canadian. She she, okay. uh, she is from uh, Aylmer, Ontario. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah. That's where the tomatoes come from. That's true. It's very much true. She lived around there in Georgetown and, and, and Toronto uh, for most of uh, her life until her 30s when she moved to the United States. That's where you live. I, I do. I live in suburban Los Angeles now. Is that where you, is that where you grew up? Or? No, I actually grew up in Arizona. I grew okay. up all around the state. Um, 
Yeah, uh, I lived in the very southwest corner down by the border. Uh, I lived in uh, the capital in Phoenix, and I lived for a short time up in Flagstaff, up in the mountains, which was also very pretty. Uh, all around Arizona. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, a, a bit of a mutt from that respect. Um, dad's from Queens, mom's from rural Canada, and they met in Toronto and then moved around the States and then came down to Arizona and had me. Got it right. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> so why don't we get into your first song? Because it seems okay. like we are chopping at the bit to discuss your early years. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right. What do we have first? Well, first up, we have Don't Go. And if you are from the United States, that's by a band called Yaz. And if you're from literally anywhere else, it's from a band called Yazoo. So I actually learned this morning about the difference between Yaz and Yazoo. Yeah. They're the same band. They are. It's legal troubles. We had a Yazoo already, and that was a problem. We couldn't (laughs) have two. You can't have two of one thing. Dove chocolate and dove soap. No. No, no. We won't have that here. I mean, I think the two doves have a a gentleman's agreement. (laughs) They do have a gentleman's agreement. And, you know, normally I would say you're not going to confuse the baseball player with the band. But then you also think this was around the same time that you had the football team doing the very terrible rap and all that. So, I mean, (laughs) it could happen. Stranger things have happened. There was no synergy between these two brands. No, so, no, they no. couldn't come to an agreement. It was very <laughs> no. difficult, you know. So why did you pick this song? Oh, okay. So I am the fifth child of five. Uh, my parents were very nearly in their 40s when they had me. So they had been married. They had children in the previous marriages, uh, divorced on my mom's side, and, and my dad's first wife actually passed away. Uh and then they got together and, and they had my eldest or my middle sister and then they had me. So my parents had a kind of distance from pop culture from, you know, from us because, you know, you're in you're almost 40. Actually, they're they're about my age. <laughs> and so it would be, you know, I, I think with with the advent of social media and the advent of the Internet, it's easier for me to uh, to be conscious, to be cognizant of of pop trends currently. Uh, that wasn't so much so the case back then. My dad would listen to Willie Nelson and old jazz, and that was about it. And my mom would listen to whatever my dad was listening to. Uh, but my eldest sister, Lynn, uh, she was the one who was the, the rocker, you know, she was the one who had the teased hair and the, the, the porcelain white skin and the dark eyeshadow and the blood red lips, right? That nice. very, yeah, very cure kind of look. And, uh, she used to play, uh, upstairs at Eric's, the album that don't go is from, uh, all the time. All the time, all the time. And so uh, she would tell you, if you were to ask her, that um, there were other songs that made, a, you know, that I liked more when I was a baby. But this is the one that stuck with me. And, I mean, you just cannot skip that opening line, right? The like, it just, there is nothing quite like it. It just grabs you immediately. And then, of course, Alison Moyer's Alison Moyer voice, where it's just that, that just, bursting out forward this this huge 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 voice which was 
just a, a sight to behold, really. Mm-hmm. You know, well, it's it's diva voice, but there's something kind of I don't know. It sounds a little silly to say. It. There's something a little countercultural, or like not quite. It's not quite diva voice, but it has the power of diva voice, right? Almost like a modernized version of for the era of uh, the Blue Eyed Soul movement out of the mm. out of the sixties, seventies. You know, something that you would expect from like a Dusty Springfield or what have you. But yeah, instead, yeah, yeah. you get this in the eighties, and it's this new interpretation of what that's going to sound like. And you know, through that, of course, you see that now reflected in people like Adele. Yeah. You know, it, it, that that great big sound, uh, and of course, I, I think. Uh, you would even mention this the the baseline slaps. Oh hell yes, <laughs> it's really good. <laughs> I so like obviously I'm familiar with this song because it's one of those '80s songs. Oh yeah, but it's not you know in the first rank of uh, in terms of ubiquity. Like uh, no, it's it's, it's not yeah. a Tiffany, it's not a Madonna. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not, you're right. Yeah, like I I think in terms of quality, it's definitely right up there. But like it's mm-hmm. not a song that you hear all that often when people are sort of doing '80s montages in like stupid movies or whatever. Right. right. But like, and I I remember obviously that that hook that that you yep. quoted. I do not remember, and I only noticed for the first time this morning that synth bass is. On fire. It oh, is yeah. great. <laughs> yeah. I think we have the advantage nowadays of having, you know, uh, remastered versions of the tracks mm-hmm. and being able to hear things with better clarity. Yeah. Uh, you know, of course, they were always there. The the actual music was always there. But, you know, I'm listening to this thing on a Fisher-Price uh, record player that's, yeah. you know, yeah. the color of two different types of office envelopes. And, yeah. the, <laughs> you know, <laughs> it was great. This coming out of like a teeny radio would be yeah. uh, not well served, whereas uh, coming out of a good set of speakers with a good mm-hmm. low end, oh yeah, <laughs> yeah, get you some cans on that one. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's great. Great. So great your sister introduced you to all kinds of music, including this. Mm-hmm. Uh, what's the age difference between you guys? Oh, uh, so Lynn was, let's see, sixteen years my elder. Oh wow. Okay. Yeah. So when you were sort of coming into pop cultural awareness this sort of trio of older siblings would have been college age. Exactly. And not only were they of college age, they were MTV age when MTV was a new thing. So uh, they educated you, I guess. Was was it primarily Lynn or or was it all three? Uh, It was primarily Lynn. Uh, My eldest brother was off at college. My uh, middle brother was off at a prep school. So uh, Lynn was the one who was, was home. Uh, so she was the one who would really, she was the, the introduction to pop music. So of course, you know, I would get Yaz, I would get George Michael, I would get, you know, all, all of the stuff that was of that era from Mm -hmm. her. So I'm thinking now about your relationship to other kids, your age, uh, and the fact that you had a, a cool, like early twenties, older sister, Mm -hmm. like feeding Mm -hmm. you all this stuff, Mm -hmm. uh, how 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 did your musical tastes relate to your peers in your like early, oh in your class? golly you know as a as a child that was one of the things that was always the problem is that they it didn't mm. uh, you know so uh, what my siblings generally didn't listen to was a lot of the top forty stuff uh, you didn't get a lot of of. Uh, you know, the Backstreet, or not Backstreet, excuse me, <laughs> New Kids on the Block. I mean, you didn't get a lot of the Backstreet Boys because it was another, you know, 20 years out. But They were uh, really ahead of the curve. Oh, <laughs> really? Yeah, just some zygotes and a microphone. So, uh, no, you uh, 
I, I didn't get a lot of the new kids. I didn't get a lot of uh, of pretty much anything else. The, I will say there was one exception mm-hmm. uh, where I had a moment of uh, pop awareness and my parents did not. And this was a, a spectacular moment in my childhood. Uh, Dad, being from New York, uh, would occasionally take us back. Now, Dad lived in Queens uh, and Shelter Island, so we didn't really go to Manhattan very much. But occasionally, you know, we we would go there. Uh, Shelter Island was the primary place where we go. That's where you know my grandparents lived. But he wanted us to go and experience the city, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and as a child, I loved the musical Annie, which um, says a lot <laughs> about me as a child. But you know, all right, we'll run with it. So uh, my parents thought, wouldn't it be great? There's a scene in the movie, uh, which I don't believe is in the actual play. Uh, where they go to Radio City Music Hall. And uh, we, my, my parents decided that they were going to surprise us to take us to Radio City, Radio City Music Hall, like an Annie, Peter. Okay, yeah, great. And uh, it was this concert for a show that my parents had never heard of that my father had assumed was a Cuban folklorico dance troupe mm-hmm. called the Miami Sound Machine. It was Gloria Estefan in the Miami Sound Machine. So we're in the back of a taxi, and my parents are saying, we're going to be seeing something called the Miami Sound Machine. I'm there with my most direct uh, sibling, Anne. And we just start screaming in the back of this taxi. We're going to go see Gloria Estefan. It was. And so, of course, my, you know, my, at this point, in their 40s, parents just the color drains out of their faces like, oh, no. Oh, no. They know what it is, and we don't know what it is. That's going to be a thing. They know what it is. And so that was – that's still I, – I, I still love that. Um, Fantastic. Yeah, it was a great show. Uh, I, I still hold that Gloria Estefan is, you know, what made me queer now. Uh, the rhythm got me. Uh, <laughs> well, it's gonna. She warned you. She warned us all. The sarcophagus around the Miami sound machine that they were using to seal it in, it started to, you know, crack with age, like Chernobyl. <laughs> Letting out all the rainbow radiation. Yeah, it was great. Well, it's Miami, man. I don't know what to tell you. That's fantastic. <laughs> so, I mean, I know that you work in music now as I an adult. I do. Uh, did you have a musical education when you were young? Or? I did, yeah. Okay, I, well, I started about that. Yeah, I started playing piano first when I was a uh, kindergartner. Uh, well, I started playing before that, but I started taking lessons for piano when I was a kindergartner. And I sang, of course. Uh, I actually was uh, apparently according to my mother, one of the finalists for the uh, Jack in the original touring production of uh, Into the Woods. I remember the audition in that uh, Sondheim uh, corrected my grammar, (laughs) which (laughs) feels correct. Piano was was the first instrument for me, and it's probably the one that I still play the most uh, frequently uh, now. Compose on it? I do. I do. You know... uh, when you write music for video games, a lot of the time, especially the style that I do, which is a kind of a combination of orchestral and chip tunes, uh, it's uh, you could as easily say that I compose on uh, computer as you could on 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 piano, but really the input is piano. That is the primary source for me. Yeah, and so in terms of "Don't Go," uh, it's a real keyboard like yeah. geek track. Absolutely. Uh, 
yeah so did this sort of like you're 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 a pianist you're uh you know you're taking lessons you're auditioning for musicals you know Uh, going and seeing him play and you know of course this was synthesizers had been around for a while at this point but this was really the 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 point when computational synthesizers right when when you had memory cards and everything and you know when that really started to become a deal and Mm -hmm. i was just absolutely fascinated by the idea of this one instrument that could make all of these different sounds and it wasn't like an organ where you know when you have an organ all of the pipes for the various sounds out of the organ they're there it's 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 a physical thing this didn't feel physical to me and so that was when i really thought oh you know I'm going to learn this one of these days. And uh, I was lucky enough to have the opportunity to do that. You know, I I would have a computer, my old Apple, and it had a very simple music writing software and I could click and drag the notes into a staff and oh my goodness, it would play. And it was just the neatest thing in the world. I loved it. I absolutely loved it. I still do it now. Well, exactly. (laughs) Right, so if we're ready to move on, uh, why don't you tell us what we got next? Next up, we have the second movement from Nikolai Rimsky-Korsakov's Scheherazade, the story of the Calendar Prince. This is beefy. <laughs> it's beefy. It really it is. is. Yeah. <laughs> it's one of those ones where I was pondering the music that really affected me around the around that era. And uh I thought, well, you know, this is this is a good selection. And then I looked at the length of the track and said, geez, this is a lot. <laughs> There's a lot that happens in this track. It's true. It's not the longest I've had someone select this, so Well, that's uh, <laughs> I I don't know whether to feel proud or offended by that, but uh, I'm going to go with proud. <laughs> you said that this sort of reflects you know, a particular era. So what, what, what era are we talking about here? So when I was nine years old, mm-hmm. I moved from Phoenix down to Yuma, Arizona. And Yuma was a um, very different place for me. It was first a substantially smaller place in, in comparison. Uh, I also moved from uh, a private schooling to public schooling for the first time. And uh, that was a bit of an adventure, you know, going from a uh, religious education to a secular education was an adjustment period for me. Uh, But it was okay. You know, I actually think that was probably one of the best things that happened to me, you know, in the long run. Was your your family religious? Tremendously, tremendously religious. It's odd. My, My father's side of the family was Jewish before... They when they were back in Germany, and then when they moved over, they converted to Catholicism. Uh, my great uncle was a Monsignor. Uh, my great aunt was a, uh, a nun. My father actually has a signed apostolic blessing from Pope John Paul II because oh, he wow. helped organize the Pope's visit to the United States and actually organized his visit to Phoenix. So yeah, uh, tremendously, tremendously religious. Okay, this this colors the uh, Gloria Estefan story now. <laughs> a little bit, yeah. Mm. So, okay, so re- very, very 
very Catholic family. Yeah, very uh, And you've moved from Phoenix to a much smaller town. But um, sort of like conversely to what I would expect, you had, uh, went to secular school schooling now. So I, I'm sort of like, don't know whether this dialed up or dialed down the strictness in your life. <laughs> it dialed it. Uh, I can't say whether it dialed it up or down. I think it just shifted the tone a bit. Mm. Um, my life became a lot more interesting as a result of that. You know, I went to a place where English was not a, the primary language that was spoken uh, by a lot of folks. It was certainly the primary language in the school. But, you know, you, so you go from this place where, you know, this very upper middle class, you know, it's, it's, this is how you do things. This is, this is the society that you're supposed to be living in. This is, you know, it, it's really drilled in to uh, a, a burst of color, mm. really, where life became a whole heck lot more interesting. I will say I was a very um, uh, reserved child, I think, when <laughs> when I first moved down there. I remember um, the first day in uh, fourth grade, which was the first public school day. Uh, my old Catholic school back in Phoenix, uh, it had windows that faced out to the to the playground, but it didn't have windows that faced into the breezeway. Whereas my new school, the the public school, it had windows everywhere. It was just the most bright, open thing. And the teacher had the door open, and she wasn't a nun, and she was very friendly. Uh, all of that was very new to me. I remember she, on the first day, saw somebody out in the courtyard who she seemed to recognize, and she leaned out and she said, hey, Seuss, called out to him. And I thought for the life of me that she said, hey, comma, Seuss, as in Dr. Seuss. <laughs> mm -hmm. And this man came in wearing a custodian's outfit with the name Jesus on his, <laughs> on his outfit, on his uniform. And I thought to myself, oh, my goodness, <laughs> his parents named him Jesus and he's the janitor. They must be incredibly disappointed in him. <laughs> So, needless to say, it was a growth experience for me. Yeah. I am very happy to say that I, I have learned some things since, mm -hmm. you know, since 1989. But <laughs> one or two things. So, I, I'm trying to complete my mental picture. Uh, I, I, I've got a lot of it. How big is this town, small city? Yuma is 70,000 people. Okay. So, in, in Canadian terms, a decent-sized city. Yeah, decent-sized place. But what happens is in the winter, Yuma becomes a city of 210,000 people. They all come down from Canada, from Michigan, from New York, because Yuma had a uh, on average, 360 sunny days a year. Wow. With only five cloudy or rainy days in the entire year. So it was also mostly an agricultural city. Uh, most of the uh, winter lettuce was grown down there. Uh, so like I said, going from a fairly metropolitan area, certainly suburban area, to an agricultural city, to, you know, a, a much smaller, you know, much more insular. Uh, the new school was a lot smaller, had fewer kids in it, the whole thing. So one of the um, first memories that I had in that school was uh, they had flyers passed out and they were just put on all the kids' desks. And it was that the Yuma Orchestra Association was looking for uh, students. And if you wanted to learn how to play a stringed instrument and be in the orchestra, you should come to this thing and 
and and do the thing. Okay. Well, I <laughs> bless my parents. I was always looking for a new instrument. The problem with me with piano is that um, I learned how to play by ear and absolutely resented practicing. Oh, I hated it. I absolutely hate it. Now, of course, you know, 38-year-old Peter would like to travel back in time, just, just sit down and practice, but, you know, can't, no, no luck on that one. So I would, I would practice piano and, oh, it would just be dreadful. And then I said, oh, I don't want to play piano anymore. I want to play guitar. And my parents would say, okay, we'll try guitar with you. And I would be mediocre at guitar. I'd say, all right, I don't want to play guitar anymore. I like The Simpsons. I like Lisa. I want to play saxophone. So I learned <laughs> saxophone and it was not good. I did not sound good. So, mm -hmm. you know, I didn't know if my uh, parents could be suckered into letting me try out something for, you know, for, for an orchestra. But, you know, all right, thought I'd give that one a particular shot, right? So uh, we go. And I decided that I wanted to play violin, mostly because I knew that the violinists got the solos, right? <laughs> they got to... They you got said to you be... were a reserved kid, huh? Well, you know, I didn't say I wasn't still a braggart, just a reserved braggart. Classy <laughs> you, braggart. You can tame multitudes. <laughs> In my little nine-year-old body. Mm -hmm. So uh, I was able to convince my mother, and we go, and uh, the instructor... A woman named Janet Jones said, "Oh no, no, no! You are your hands are too big. You're you're too tall of a child to play violin. Instead, I would like you to play the cello." And I said, "Absolutely not! I want to play violin." Hmm. I put my foot down on this one, and my mom said, "He wants to play violin. Just give him a shot, right?" So we rented a violin, and I started to play. And eventually, I worked my way up. And uh, ended up becoming the concertmaster of the orchestra. Actually, I became the concertmaster of all of the various orchestras at some point or another in Yuma. Um, I was able to then um, go to a neighboring town in uh, in California named Del Centro, uh, where I was able to play with some of the folks from the Los Angeles Symphony and the whole thing. And actually, by training, violin is the primary instrument for me. Um, I have played it now for, well... Uh, 20 some odd years, <laughs> 28 years, 27 years. Um, I love it. You know, it's a wonderful, wonderful instrument. I have a, I have the one that my, my second violin, you generally tend to get your first like student violin and it's okay. Yeah. My second violin, which is this beautiful hundred and some change year old beast uh, is at my sides right now, actually. Lovely. Yeah. Um, during that time, I listened almost exclusively to classical music because it was for practice. Again, I still, you know, uh, ear training is my, my probably my strongest sense. So I would have to listen to the piece to make sure that I was playing it correctly. And uh, Scheherazade was just one of those pieces. You know, um, I, I love the, the Russian classicals and romantics. Um, you know, you kind of can't uncouple this from its time. It certainly... He has some very specific ideas, uh, Rimsky-Korsakov has, about um, what I'm going to say in tremendous air quotes, oriental music sounds like. Uh, and that's not reflective of truth, but it is nevertheless a beautiful piece. Mm -hmm. And it's got that beautiful violin solo, but it also has, you know, wonderful bassoon lines, wonderful bass lines, cello lines. 
it's just a great, big, overwhelming piece uh, just on the whole. And this movement, even as a microcosm within the greater, is just one hell of a thing. It's also one of the first times I recognized a piece of classical music being played in media. Weirdly, it was actually Ren and Stimpy. <laughs> I was just sitting, you know, as a kid, you know, at this point, I'm, mm-hmm. you know, 10, 11 years old, and Ren and Stimpy's on the air, and I'm chilling out, and I'm like, wait a second, that's Scheherazade. I know that. Okay. <laughs> so, uh... That penny hadn't dropped earlier with any of the Looney Tunes classics? You know, it's just one of those things where when you come at it from the media point first, Mm -hmm. uh, I had not associated the 1812 Overture with the 1812 Overture. I had associated (laughs) it with Looney Tunes. No, it's a Looney Tunes track. Whatever. The can-can is... Morning from like, nah. (laughs) No, no. Get get it right. Looney Tunes first, obviously. (laughs) Tchaikovsky, screw that. Yeah, he was he he worked he worked for the Warner Brothers. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think they've got him on retainer now. <laughs> it's interesting because uh, I I think this whenever I sort of because I mean I I have a classical uh, education of course as well and uh, I mean I was not really in the orchestral world so I'm less well versed in this sort of province of. Mm-hmm the classical repertoire, but it always makes me think about how to my mind, when I listen to this, it's like anticipating film score. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. You can, you can see the movements you can see, or if, if it's not a film score, it's a ballet. If it's not a ballet, mm. it's, you know, live painting. I don't know, but like it, it's, it's one of those pieces where you feel it almost as much as you hear it. You, you can, smell this piece mm. and it, it's heady stuff and i love that about it i absolutely love that about it is that in general what you like about the sort of late romantics oh absolutely you know um being a, a violinist you get a lot of the classicals you get a lot of baroque and the thing with baroque is if you just play the notes as they are on the page it can be dry mm-hmm they weren't intended to just be played like that they had flow they had movement the the music breathes Right. But there is no question of that with the romantics, with the classical, especially as you get into the late classical period. There is no question that this is fiery and that this is this is just passionate and this is huge. It's it's very alive. And I love that about it. I can pick up from context clues that you probably performed uh, this piece. I did. I did. Uh, I didn't get to perform a complete symphony of this particular one someday you know that's that's on the on the list unfortunately the orchestra well not unfortunately at the time the orchestra that i was in was just strings and this is bigger than that you have mm-hmm. to have horns you have to have bassoons it it will sound okay without it but rimsky korsakov really f- wrote beautifully for the entire orchestra for the entire symphony I was going to ask, did this influence your compositional practices? But clearly it must have. So in what ways? (laughs) The thing that I'd say Rimsky-Korsakov taught me, you know, 100 and change years in the future, was to compose for more than just the instrument that you play. (laughs) You know, it's, it's as a pianist, it's easy to compose for piano because you know I have 10 fingers, and normally 88 keys, 
and I'm going to compose for 10 fingers and normally 88 keys, mm-hmm. right? If I am a violinist, I'm going to compose for starting from G and I'm going to go, you know, to however high up I, I feel comfortable playing. The thing about this particular piece is that it really makes you want to hear more than just you, mm. right? It gets you out of your own head a little bit. And so whenever I do write, I try not to write just for violin. In fact, a lot of the times when I write for uh, for a piece that has any sort of orchestral element to it, I don't make the violin the strongest instrument sometimes, but most of the times, no. Uh, you know, let's hear more than just... Let's hear more than just me. That's a good point. When I'm remembering listening to this piece earlier today, uh, it, it is a nice sort of opportunity to sort of enjoy the timbre of various instruments in turn. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Cool. And it plays. You know, the, the various little uh, phrases, the moments, they play with each other. Mm-hmm. This, this movement in particular is really good at just... I'm going to have this this phrase here, and it's going to get echoed there. So I'm going to be playing it here on the bassoon, and now it's going to be on the bass. I'm going to play it on the violin, and it's going to be on the on the clarinet. I'm going to play it on the flute, and it's going to be on the violin. Like, it, it goes back and forth. And so you get kind of a – it's almost like, frankly, going through a list of, you know, audio samples now <laughs> when I'm, you know, composing something. I'm like, okay, what does this line sound like? If it's a piano, what does this line sound like? If it's a harpsichord, what does this line sound like? If it's a clarinet, you know, it almost that same kind of thing, but you're seeing it in a greater context. I love it. Absolutely love it. So why don't you tell us what we have next? Next up, we have Simon's theme from uh, Super Castlevania 4. excited yeah. i think when you when you talk to me about coming on here i think you mentioned that nobody has talked about video game music before. i'm gonna feel like a real pile of crap if someone has <laughs> i forgot but i don't believe so no and the yellow ferris be like i talked about super mario brothers you ass you he, jerk he he had stronger than you from steven universe and that that oh. made my heart grow three sizes mm-hmm. <laughs> That's good stuff. <laughs> Indeed. Anyways, we're here to talk about Simon and Castlevania. <laughs> All right. So, absolutely. Konami did tremendous stuff mm-hmm. within the limitations of the hardware. Some tracks, I believe, they even add like an extra audio chip into the, um, to the cartridge because they wanted to compose bigger than what the software allowed. Mm-hmm. But this was one of those tracks. You get the Super Nintendo, which to this day had just an amazing audio chip on it. It really did. And uh, the thing that that made it different than the original Nintendo is that while the original Nintendo had a chip to make chip tunes, the Super Nintendo used samples, which is why you would get, you know, sometimes great guitars, great orchestra hits, the whole thing, right? All that, that good stuff. So there was something 
that was just an immediate grab with this track where it has that, you know, that great opening bit, the, with the, like that, just that kind of, it feels like bats. It feels like the opening almost of, of the Scooby-Doo before the, before the actual track comes in, you know, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. it was just like nothing else. It was such an exciting sound. It was driving. It was, oh man, this, this track was what made me want to write music for video games. Mm. This was like, there are a couple, but this was one of the ones I was like, oh, this is cool. Because it set the scene, right? It wasn't just spooky music and you should be scared. Which is, frankly, I, as a much lazier composer, would have done. (laughs) Like, (laughs) oh, there are bats, there are zombies, there are skeletons walking for some reason. Whatever! Be scared, right? But this was driving. Mm-hmm. And I mean, for heaven's sakes, it has an organ breakdown. What else could I possibly ask for out of a track? Come on. So clearly you played video games. Oh, I absolutely played video games. Yeah. We had uh, the Super Nintendo. We had some computer games. Um, I I fell in love with Loom back on the PC. That was an old adventure game that was put on by LucasArts. And uh, the score to that is just Swan Lake. Mm. But that was one of those ones where you think, oh, wow, well, yeah, I guess you can use classical music in a video game setting, right? And in a lot of of Super Castlevania IV's soundtrack, a lot of it is based upon Toccata and Fugue. It was cool to see that in a modern setting, by which I mean in an application for video games as opposed to in an old horror film or on stage or in a ballet. It was this idea that the almost the classical ethos could be modernized, that the two languages actually shared some common ground and could speak to each other. I was so excited from that because it meant that I could be like a harpsichord player, but still make video game music or rock music or, you know, and of course, that has informed the things that I've listened to since then, but it was just, at the time, it was so neat. And I, mm-hmm. I, it's, I feel like I could just be effusive about it for hours. Well, it's it's interesting, because I'm quite interested in video game music, because mm-hmm. I think most people our age uh, and younger obviously grew up with video games being an important like media form they consume oh absolutely. And so yeah. like the music for your favorite games you're gonna hear it for dozens of hours sure uh, and so the you know it, it gets in there and the good ones you you know they sort of bring back an entire feeling uh, and a whole set of memories and uh like i can still you, you play a track from Mega Man 2 and i'll light right up <laughs> like, oh absolutely but I find it so interesting because, as you say, um, especially with, like, the the generation prior to this one that we're discussing here, but, like, the tool set was very, very limited. And uh, mm-hmm. I don't want to go so far as to say it was, like, an abjected music form, but it was definitely, like, you know, not the same as film score or... Oh, no. No, no. Absolutely. Yeah. It so, was, it was low, low art, shall we say. <laughs> Comics as opposed to a Lichtenstein print, right? Exactly. So... Yeah. Uh, the interesting part about that is when you write music for that style of video game, and I say that style of video game, I, I mean a non-cinematic 
video game, right? So some mm-hmm. some video games had cutscenes. I'm thinking like Ninja Gaiden. But when you're just talking about like a standard platformer game, which is I think what most of us what we all played Mario, we all played Mega Man, we all played Castlevania, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I <laughs> he said making generalizing sweeping statements for everybody. Okay, <laughs> cool, good job, Pete. Middle class kids in their thirties, <laughs> you know? Yes, yeah. So like all of us, mm-hmm. so. Uh, uh, when you compose music for that style game, which is I, what I do now, a lot of the time you don't write it with an ending. Mm-hmm. Consider Super Mario Brothers, the uh, Overworld one-one uh, track for that. It doesn't end. You have points in your head where it ends, but it it just keeps kind of picking up. It just keeps going. Uh, what's different now is a lot of times the music actually does have a beginning, middle, and an end. If you look, for example, at the truly wonderful score for breath of the wild those tracks end oh yeah and, and yeah that that's that's a spectacular score that's one of those scores you just listen to as a composer like, god damn it that's better than anything i'm ever gonna do you know? it's just <laughs> so good but uh in a lot of ways super castlevania 4 is i think probably the thing that i'm still reaching for so i'm not very much into horror no however i do like music from old horror films oh sure often because like i'm thinking about goblin in particular now Mm. it has that driving element that Mm -hmm. this also has which isn't spooky (laughs) like it's no no it's not spooky (laughs) at all think about john carpenter's uh halloween Mm -hmm. soundtrack uh which uh he composed it's not spooky but it is driving i don't know if it's just activating the fight or flight response or, or something i'm not <laughs> it, sure it keeps but. you tense it keeps you it, it keeps you alert i think and yeah. when you have a game like this where you know stuff's gonna be jumping out of you from everywhere yeah alertness helps I'm trying to remember now you can correct me if i'm wrong about this breath of the wild that's it's it's all real instruments recorded like live right? almost like, entirely there are a few that are going to be synthesized instruments um and that that is generally what you have now Mm-hmm. Uh, if an instrument will be too difficult to record or you want to make it sound different than maybe it would, you can model the um, the sound of the instrument itself beforehand and just do it as a as a uh, audio file. So obviously any sort of any reflection of the hardware limitations that existed 20 years ago is purely an aesthetic choice. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, nowadays it absolutely is. Um, I think you're really only limited by hardware space, by or by you know space of whatever media that you put it on. So, for example, if it's a physical media, a disc, a, a cartridge, a chip, like in the Switch, uh, you have your memory limitations on that. But depending on on the uh, on the actual track or on the medium upon which you are playing it. It might not even have that type of limitation. Uh, I know composers who are working now almost entirely in, it's almost hard to call it traditional composition, where it's just the game composes the music, and you're just kind of setting up how the game is going to compose the music. It's fascinating stuff to see. It really is. But by, by when you say when the game composes the music, do you mean the music is composed algorithmically or something? Yeah. Or? Oh, okay. <laughs> and you set up the algorithm, which, you know, you have the argument of, is that composition? Is that art? Well, I'm going to go towards yes. To say that 
it must have the traditional composer set up and must have the traditional instrumentalist set up is very much similar to the saying that it's not visual art unless it was painted or had pencil or was, you know, a fresco. It, it really depends on what you want to get out of it, right? As the composer, as the music supervisor, what have you. And so the fact that maybe you're putting an algorithm, well, that's still your ears tuning that. That's still you setting it up. It's a different form of the art, but I think it still counts. Mm -hmm. So this is a field you've worked in for some time. Uh, yeah, about 10 years now. So how did you get into, uh, like, you, you wanted to compose for video games when you were a kid and playing these games and being excited by the music. But, like, that desire needs to be put into action. So how did you actually get into doing it? Very much by accident. I had composed music for other medium, uh, other media. I had composed for play. I had composed for uh, commercials. I had composed for... Um, a few different um, pilots. I kind of figured that that was the the way to go because I thought that composing for a video game was going to be uh, too much of a barrier of entry. I didn't really know many video game people. My husband, on the other hand, did. At the time, he was not my husband. He's an animator, and uh, we had done cartoons together and the whole thing. And there was a small community uh, on Newgrounds, of the animators. And of course, when you are on Newgrounds, you also have folks who um, don't just make cartoons, they also make games, things like that. Newgrounds is a web forum? Is it still existing? Or? It is a website. It's still around. Okay. It's it's wonderful, actually. Uh, you know, it, interestingly enough, in the, the post-Tumblr apocalypse of the week, because heaven knows that's not the first or last time, <sighs> Newgrounds has come in and said, you know, we're happy to host a lot of art here. We're happy to host a lot of creation here. They're, they're great. It was primarily a lot of uh, videos. Back in the day, it was mostly shock stuff, as a lot of the internet was at the time. Is that where Salad Fingers first came it from? It absolutely is. Yeah. Okay. All right. Uh, I also think Weeble and Bob were first there. And a lot of stuff. A lot of stuff. And you'll see a lot of the old Newgrounds folks now doing greater media. Uh, you know, some of the folks that we knew have gone on to work for Cartoon Network, have gone on to do comic books, have gone on to do a lot of stuff. It, it, it's great. It's very, it's it's neat to see that progression of growth. So my, my husband, uh, Matt, knew um, a few video game people. He would belong to that forum, but he'd belong to some others. And there was a guy who needed a composer because his composer had crapped out. My husband said, would you be interested in doing that? And I said, sure. And he said, fantastic. He needs to have the game composed within about two weeks. <laughs> now, it's not my best work. <laughs> it's not very good. <laughs> it really isn't. I think it, it had something to it, but uh, it was rushed, certainly. Oh, sure. Sure. And uh, for the first couple of games, that was actually what I was known for. I uh, got known to, uh, well, he makes music quickly. Mm-hmm. That was really the the big start for me. One of the soundtracks got released to uh, public domain, and, or to, excuse me, Creative Commons. And uh, as a result of that, you'll hear my compositions on a whole bunch of different you know, YouTube openings and things like that, which is great. I was going to ask how that made you feel. Lindsay Ellis recently had a video that, about the author being dead. 
you know, kill the author. I will put a link in the show notes. It's worth watching. Absolutely wonderful. Her her work is spectacular. Uh, in this instance, the composer is dead. There are times when I will find my track associated with things that I do not agree with. There'll be sometimes political videos. There are times that I'll find it with things that I absolutely do agree with. Most often what I get are folks doing their first podcast or their first YouTube video and they need to have music and, you know, they come to me and they ask, would it be all right if I use it? And absolutely, you know, absolutely. You want to have the ability to add something else. Ultimately, the the goal that I have as a composer is to add to the greater work. I don't intend to be the star of any show. That's why I work in video games instead of, you know, being a solo artist. I like to just be part of the team. When I was having my discussion with John Allison a few months ago, we talked a lot about how the late 90s and early zeros, or whatever you want to call that decade, were a particularly good time to sort of be a creator on the internet. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And it's much more difficult to sort of hew out a space nowadays. And I think at the time, mm-hmm. since it was so new, uh, there was a question of which was going to be the format that was going to take over, right? So, you know, I remember when YouTube was not owned by Google, when it was, you know, just where you would go to find pirated episodes of whatever, for me, was the Golden Girls, because queer. It was a big question mark. Um, John Allison, at the time, uh, was on uh, Keenspot, and uh, I was on Keenspace. There was the, the, I believe that was it. It was the sister site uh, for new creators. It was uh, really interesting to see how that shifted. Unfortunately, a lot of what's happened in the uh, interceding years has been a need to make those business be sustainable. Unfortunately, a lot of times creative businesses, and you'll see this all the time with SoundCloud. SoundCloud is perpetually running into trouble as to whether or not they can keep up, right? Whether they can afford their own hosting costs, because heaven knows that is really some beefy stuff, right? It's difficult because we've put ourselves into sort of the trap of the internet is free, but running the internet is not. Unfortunately, what you have now is that extra layer of, okay, but will this be profitable for us? Right. And so it's become a lot more difficult. At the same time, you do still have the free services. And so everybody gravitates to those free services because if you don't have to worry about that extra layer of scrutiny, that extra layer of profitability, everybody's going to go there because maybe they're not ready. And, you know, maybe more importantly, maybe they don't care about it being able to turn a profit. Not every story has to be sold. Right. Mm-hmm. That doesn't, mm-hmm. that doesn't change its value as a story. Not every song has to be a pop hit. So what you get are places where there's just a tremendous barrier to entry and then places where it's just a flood and you just get lost. Yeah. And that's a little difficult. I I think I was very lucky to come up during the time that I did. All right. So why don't we move on to our next song? What do we have? Next up, we have Isabel or Isabel uh, by Bjork from her album Post.
hit that umlaut. <laughs> by Bjork? I did. By Bjork. By Bjork. No, I'm not making fun of you. You said it right. <laughs> okay. So so this is some classic uh, Bjork. Why don't you tell me how this song came into your life? Okay. So during the time that I was really starting to become a violinist, I, like I mentioned, listened almost entirely entirely to classical music. But occasionally you'd get something fun. And uh, I went to a music camp up in Flagstaff when I was living in Yuma before we moved up there. Arizona is not the Arizona that most people think of as Arizona. When you think of Arizona, you think of a saguaro cactus, a rattlesnake, some some scorpions, and a tumbleweed rolling off in the distance. And that is true. I mean, that is absolutely part of Arizona. That's, That's real. Most of... The people who live in Arizona live in the southern half. The northern half of Arizona is mountainous, and it's pine forest, and frequently it's quite cold, actually, because you're so high up. You know, it's Denver-level altitude, you know, going on up there. And so in the summers, when it would be just rip-roaring hot in southern Arizona, I would be up in northern Arizona at this music camp. They'd overcrowded the camp a bit. So whereas uh, so this this camp was at a at Northern Arizona University, it was lovely. You got to stay in the dorms. That was great because I do not do outdoor camping for anything this year. Whereas normally it would be two kids to a dorm room, it was three. Oh no, that was okay. You know, whatever. Except that at the time, I was a young kid, not yet out of the closet. Which is already not a super great time in general. And then to have like two guys that I have to hide, you know, my queerness from. Oh man, that was that was a stressful, stressful time. Roughly what age are we talking? I think I probably would have been fifteen. Okay. 14, 15 so, years old. <laughs> lots of hormones. Oh yeah. Oh okay. yeah. Absolutely. I would have been fourteen years old because post the the Bjork album had just come out i i didn't know who this was i had no idea uh i think in retrospect i had heard uh human behavior but i i didn't you know i didn't really it wasn't on my my radar one of my roommates was really cool and really laid back and the other one was just a goblin but he had like great taste in music and was also (laughs) cooler than i was ever gonna be like he was awful but like also you know, I wanted to be him kind of thing. It was great. And he was super countercultural, which, of course, is going to go super well at a music camp. Like, okay, hmm, your counterculture, you say, at a music camp? All right. Well, you'll fit in with the rest of the kids, I guess. You know, congratulations. But uh, he was in, you know, Marilyn Manson, and he was in Rasputina, and he was, you know, all that stuff. So he was into Bjork, because Bjork was weird and different and Sounded strange and whatever. He really liked It's Oh So Quiet. Fun track from the album. I mean, it's it's great, right? So I listened to It's So So Quiet a lot. Enough so that when I went home, Post was the very first CD that I bought for myself. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's the very first one. Now, there's not a lot on there that sounds like It's Oh So Quiet. No! And so I hated it. <laughs> I absolutely couldn't stand it. It was so different. I mean, consider you know you're you're in there looking for some big band jazz, and and 
you get you turn it on an army of me is the first thing yeah, you hear really you know, here comes glass crashing and this <laughs> driving beat like what the hell is this, this yeah, yeah monstrous monstrous synth yeah absolutely i was like oh no 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 i'm not no no we're gonna skip ahead oh so quiet and we're gonna leave everything else to be that's fine but i had a broken cd player okay i thought uh, you know i was i was skipping forward to play it so so quiet and the button stopped it stuck and it skipped ahead and it skipped to you've been flirting again mm. you go, you kind of can't think of isabel without thinking of it as the second half of a two-part track right like they, they really do flow into each other it, it it perked my ears up because it was classical there were elements of classical music happening here and because the button had stuck and decided to just play there instead, okay, I listened to the next track, and it was Isabel. And it was big. It was so big. It, it opened my head up. It opened my ears up. It opened my, my brain up. It was unlike anything that I had passively heard on the radio. From how you've described your sort of musical education and your tastes and opinions when you were 14, 15... I can imagine a lot in this song that would have appealed to you. Absolutely. Right from the flutes, the sort of flourish at the beginning and the bassoons, the, yeah, Yeah, absolutely. It breaks into this beautiful, lush string track, almost out of, you know, a a sixties spy movie, really, you know, it, it wouldn't sound out of place with, you know, James Bond slinking around in something with somebody slinking around on James Bond. Like it was just beautiful. I think that was the one where I stopped thinking of Bjork's voice as being quirky Mm -hmm. and started really thinking about it as a formidable instrument. Yes. From there, of course, I unstuck the damn button on the the, the CD player and I listened to that whole album. Yeah. Just beginning to end. And it was just perfection. It was perfection. The fury of, of the opening of Army of Me going into Hyper Ballad and, and having this moment where the lyrics are actually talking about kind of coping with being afraid, which, my God, you're, you're queer, you're 14, you're not out of the closet, you're afraid a lot. And then going into Isabel, where the, the, the track, you know, going there and, and, and the track is about, well, I'm going to strike out on my own. I'm going to be fine. I'm I'm going to handle my own shit. It is very much a, a, a steel in your spine kind of message of, of the song. And it's beautiful. Like, it, it's, it's this idea of, you know, somebody off in some tower and she's just fine. Now, of course, this is another, the composer is dead kind of thing you have to it's almost impossible to not put your own interpretation but that was very much a queer awakening for me absolutely that yeah it was it was freedom it was it was gay pride before i would have considered going to a gay pride there's the the uh, the bit in Isabel about um was it in a heart full of dust lives a creature called lust it surprises and scares and mm-hmm. I'm like I remember being a little gay kid being like ah <laughs> lust I can't talk about lust <laughs> oh no it does surprise and scare but here's the thing the full mm-hmm. line it surprises and scares like me 
like me. Oh my god. Imagine that having that kind of power. Holy shit. It was just it was you know, I'm not a, a particularly spiritual person, but that shit was magic. That shit was was otherworldly. It's funny because you think about Bjork, and frequently Bjork's music always gets put into being some kind of electronica, right? And I mean, it's it's incredibly electronically produced music, so that's that's fair. I would argue that her stuff is some of the most organic stuff that you'll hear. It is definitely a classical musician approaching or a classically trained musician approaching electronic music, and it is th- her her production work, her 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 mind, her compositional mind, it all comes through. And she works with people who really do highlight that kind of classical mindset. I think it is incredibly organic stuff. I I think it's just as natural to hear it on, you know, a hammered dulcimer as it is to hear it on a, you know, an 808. So when you're speaking about Bjork as being organic, it obviously makes me think of some of her later work. So I want to know about your relationship to her body of work more generally now. You know, it's interesting. I feel like I haven't given her last couple of albums enough time. It's one of those ones where the real tragedy of um, my uh, life now is that I've been busy uh, in a way that I probably shouldn't allow myself to be, but I do. I do drive myself pretty hard. I loved Telegram, of course. I I, I thought <laughs> uh, interesting. I, I think Homogenic was um, amazing. I absolutely loved it. Volnikura and Utopia didn't really, and, and, and Biophilia, it, it didn't really actually um, speak to me as much. And I don't think that it's a reflection on the work. I think it's a reflection on me. Those are works that really do beg you to sit down, shut everything else off, and just listen. And I feel like I actually haven't given them enough time. I, I think the last one that I really uh, got into very hard was Majula. The interesting part is at first I hated it. <laughs> I absolutely <laughs> hated it. Uh, when I I was excited to, to pick it up, this was, of course, before... There was easy sampling for a lot of things, right? I mean, it was an album that had a couple of singles get released online, but it wasn't like you could just, you couldn't go to Spotify, right? For non-Bjork fans, this is her 99% all-vocal album. (laughs) Yeah. I remember I went to a, I believe it was Borders, pretty sure it was a Borders, back when we had Borders Books and Music. The gentleman at the store said, oh, you're picking up the new Bjork album. Funny thing. We were playing it over the the store's speakers, and a woman came up and said, pardon me, I think your speakers are broken. (laughs) And I had to say, no, that's just the new Bjork album. (laughs) When I first listened to it, it was too abstract for me. I think at the time, I had started to move towards more um, pop stuff. And so it was just, oh, what is she doing? What's going on? But I gave her the time. Mm Mm-hmm. And I'm glad that I did. I'm interested in your relationship now to hearing this when you were in the closet Mm -hmm. and it being gay pride of Aunt Lelettre. I've said that so bad. Gay pride before gay pride. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So I want to know, when did you come out? I came out at 17 years old. 
Uh, and so it was, a, you know, a few years after the fact. I had known, of course, for many years before that. Most of us sit within info for a while. Uh, Yuma was not a great place to be queer. It's not terrible, but Arizona is um, a traditional place. It was terrifying. And I was the first kid in my class to come out. It was one of those ones where, you know, of course, there was a boy and the boy had kind of hinted that uh, he might be interested in other boys. And I was like, oh, mm-hmm. I'm going to definitely be developing a crush on this guy no matter what. Right. You know, <laughs> you work with the, the pool that you've got. Exactly. There's a suggestion that this might be a viable opportunity. I'm going all in. Yeah. You know. It's lonely otherwise. And of course, I wrote a very long note, which, as I recall, was in like silver gel pen, which, oh boy. Wow. I don't know who I thought I was fooling, but yeah, <laughs> yeah it was pretty bad. And of course, he immediately shared that with everybody. Oh, no. Uh, well, you know, uh, I think I knew that it was going to happen. I, I had kind of come to terms with, it's that or kill yourself, and... um. I think that I chose the better option uh, between the two. It's interesting because, you know, when you when you are queer and when you are young, when you were a teenager, especially back then, especially back when queer immediately meant HIV. Yeah. Queer immediately meant your life is cut in half, you know, and you're going to get fired from your job and, you, you know, all just all the things that are risks still, but. I mean, all but certain back then. Mm-hmm. It forces you to re-examine a lot of priority. Because what's funny is that despite all that, staying in the closet is still worse. Yeah. You know, it was um, an incredibly toxic experience being in the closet. I, I, If I could go back in time and tell much younger Peter, no, 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 just get it out already. It's fine. I think I probably would. I don't know that it would actually have been fine if I came out when I first understood it. It was one of those things where I really had to come to terms with it. Where you come to the understanding that there may very well be a point that your parents just don't love you anymore. Yeah. Now, I'm very lucky. My parents do. Really, I'm incredibly lucky, especially given my upbringing. Especially given how just how Catholic that was. But, I mean, it's it weighs on you as a possibility. Sure. And for... A lot of kids, it's not a possibility, it's reality. Mm-hmm. And it's so it feels almost insane to say, despite that, it's better to come out. But it nevertheless remains true. Despite that, it is better to come out. So why don't we move on to our last track? What do we have? <laughs> there are so many things that this could have been. I really went went back and, and checked to see what I've been listening to lately. And I chose... Epic three from Anais Mitchell's play musical Hades Town. And suddenly Hades was only a man with a taste of nectar upon his lips, singing la 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 it's the original cast recording, right? It is. It's not the original recording, though. Okay. The very original version, uh, the character of Persephone is played by uh, Ani DeFranco, actually. Orpheus in the original is um, a, a chorus of different voices, I think. Uh, and this one, it's, it's since it's a live performance, it's Damon, uh, I think his last name is pronounced Dano, D-A-U-N-N-O. 
Uh, and he's got a hell of a voice. So Hades Town is a retelling of the Orpheus and Eurydice myth. Uh, Anais Mitchell tweaks things a little bit to actually give Eurydice a little bit more agency, which is good. She chooses to go down into Hades as opposed to she just got bitten by a snake. Within the moment of the play, Hades has taken Eurydice. The The setting is timeless, but it's, it's set before a train, basically. And it's almost uh, early 20th century New Orleans. Hades has, through a series of contract trickeries, fooled Eurydice into basically just having to stay down. In the lead up to this this track, uh, Orpheus has, you know, been told, you idiot, you know, she agreed to this, this is a contract, she signed off on it and it was perfectly fine, and he goes around and, you know, everybody down there in Town, they all, and <laughs> this is going to feel very present, Hades has them building a giant wall with the intent of having a giant wall to build. It's cyclical. And wouldn't you know, the wall gives them work to do. And the work that they're doing is building the wall. And the reason why that they're building the wall is to keep themselves free. And they keep themselves free through work. And it's, you know, it's rather present. And and this, incidentally, this play well predates the current administration. But it uh, it speaks, I think, a lot to... Um, how long we've been walking towards this. So Orpheus is mocked by Hades. He said, well, she signed the contract. You're an idiot who doesn't understand business. Aren't you dumb? And he, Orpheus, does a bold thing. And he says, well, if she actually signed the contract under the terms that you presented, then I'll accept it. But he starts to ask the question, is it is it true? Why should I believe that you're being honest? Why should I believe that the person who claims to have come out on top of this term, of the terms of this, is being honest? Every liar presents themselves as being honest. Every time you have somebody stacking the deck, they're presenting themselves as being a fair dealer. And all of a sudden, all of the people in Town start to look up and they start to ask questions because it turns out that, you know, maybe maybe those contracts weren't so legit and word of this gets back to Hades. And so he basically finds Orpheus. Persephone finds Eurydice. And basically, Orphe- or Hades and Persephone are portrayed in this play as being a, um, they're a married couple who probably shouldn't be anymore. But uh, Hades says, you know, I'm going to basically kill you. You're screwing things up for me here. But I'm going to give you a chance to save yourself. You have to sing one song. By the way, major spoilers for Orpheus and Eurydice for anybody who hasn't read Orpheus and Eurydice, but... (laughs) I I think Greek myth can be considered safe territory. (laughs) So, So Orpheus has to sing one song. In that song, he has to make Hades laugh, weep, and feel young again. And so this song... I think speaks as, of course, the entire of Orpheus's myth speaks to the power of music. One song can reduce you. It can absolutely just gut you. One song that maybe the same song can just make you burst out into laughter. Uh, that one song can exist as such a central point of a period in time of your life. And that can all be the same song. It can all be different songs. We have an incredibly intimate relationship with music. The songs that 
really are going to affect me might not affect you at all, and vice versa. And so this song is about Hades, and it is a young man with a guitar basically calling a god to the carpet and saying, well, look at you. Look where you were. Do you remember when you first fell in love, what that was like? Do you remember how you were able to focus on that instead of material wealth? Do you remember when you were able to do anything other than work? Look at where you are now. And it is an incredibly powerful piece. And in a real moment of of, of terrifying beauty, there's a refrain that Orpheus sings, and it's just him la-la-lying, but everybody joins in. And it's at that point, Hades has lost the thread. Hades has lost some of the control. Everybody else is now looking at him instead of him looking out on everything else in control of everything. Just one moment, one clear crystal moment. It is an amazing track. (laughs) It is just one of those, you know, as a composer, as a performer, you hope to reflect these crystalline moments. You hope to be able to say, you know, look where we are. I love this song. This is one of those ones that uh, it is difficult for me to listen to sometimes because you you think about it, you think, well, you know, I'm getting towards middle age and I'm really concerning myself with uh, what's going to happen after. What's going to happen with, you know, retirement and, uh, you know, the, the day-to-day grind of life and, and, and working and, you know, the the stuff that isn't as um, necessarily as beautiful. Mm. And so to have the song say, yeah, but is that worth it? It's not an easy thing to listen to, but it is it is so good to listen to. <laughs> it was, it's funny. Well, not haha, but when I was uh, listening to this earlier and reading along the lyrics and whatnot, I wondered if there's if there's any degree to which this could be read on, like biographically and how to ask that in a delicate way. <laughs> so thank, thank you for answering that without me having to ask it. Uh, happy to volunteer. <laughs> in the moment of hearing that song for the first time, I was both Orpheus and Hades. I was the person reflecting outward and inward, uh, which is a peculiar position to be in as a composer. You know, usually you're supposed to do one and then the other, right? Reflect inward, write it down, do the thing, write the music, reflect that outward. Okay. To have both happen and to have a song ask you the question of, have you been paying attention to the right things? That is an incredible moment uh, to, to have. Certainly not something that you can relive easily. That, that, that first time that you hear it, like, you you know, first time that I heard it, I had to, like, take a good 20 minutes. <laughs> like, okay, we got to think through everything right now. Were, were you were you uh, watching the musical, or were you just listening to it? In no, uh, I was listening to it, and like an idiot, I was driving. <laughs> so, as one does in Los Angeles quite a lot. And so, you know, here I am driving in Los Angeles, and, you know, trying not to weep too hard. Uh, what with crashing being a risk. Oh, it was uh, is a hell of a thing to drive home to. Yeah. Okay. This is a scary thing to me because if you set yourself up narratively to have a piece of music which is meant to have 
such power to alter sure. a character in such a such a important way, then the music better damn well stand up to it. So. It sure had. And I, I mean, honestly, those are some stakes, right? Like that is that is yeah. a terrifying place to put yourself into. But I think she pulls it off in um in a way that I wouldn't have expected. I really the entire musical is tremendous. I'm very excited about uh the the new um, performances on Broadway because it'll mean there'll be a new cast album. There'll be a, th- a third album for this. I'm curious now because you've you've composed in a variety of different you know fields, genres, whatever. Mm-hmm. Like you do video game music. Have you tried your hand at a musical? I am working on one now. Ooh, um, th- it's going to be some time before it comes out. I a lot of it is a question of rights. Uh we didn't write the story. So um I will uh say not much more about it beyond that. What we are lucky enough to have here is the Fringe Festival. There's also one in New York, but uh, the Fringe Festival is basically a festival where you get to premiere new works. Uh that maybe might not do the standard kind of well. Uh, in, that you would get in another in another venue. We are potentially my husband and I are creative partners. Very frequently, we are working on a musical with an eye towards putting it in the fringe. Well, that's a fantastic place to end it. I think. Um, so, if people are interested in finding your work or talking to you more or anything like that, uh, is there any way that they can look you up somewhere? Oh, absolutely. Twitter is probably the best place to find me right now. I'm just at Pete Gresser. Um, it's G like George, R-E-S-S-E-R. You can find my website at uh, sonofactory.com. Uh, although I will tell you that's kind of more of a, you know, contact form if you're looking for something to be composed. I'll put a link in the show note anyways. Sure, of course. Uh, but Twitter, I'm, I'm there. I uh, promise you I am... I am reading your messages. I'm just very awful about um, interacting on social media for the most part. I really do try to be better about it. You can always uh, email me, peter at peter g music or pete at sonofactory.com or just Twitter at Pete Gresser. Uh, I have recently <laughs> been pointed out to me that there is a second folder of messages from people who you do not follow. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, like, no. Oh. There are things in there from months ago. Oh, oh I no. haven't checked that. I didn't know. <laughs> now I'm going to go check that. Okay. Oh, no. Well, it's been fantastic having you as my guest. Oh, God, I'm so bad at Twitter. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's okay. Twitter is bad at us. Oh, that's true. Yeah. <laughs> Fix your damn interface, buddy. What the hell? All right. All right. Thank you. Thank you so much for chatting with me. Uh, thank you. Thank you very much for having me. Many thanks to Peter for sharing his life and music with us. This Is Your Mixtape is a proud part of the Megaphonic Podcast Network. Check out all of our fancy little shows at megaphonic.fm. Like Dear Reader, a new show that I'm doing with my friend Emily, where once a month we ask each other, read anything interesting lately? For more information about this episode of This Is Your Mixtape, check out the show notes at megaphonic.fm slash mixtape slash 26. My name is Michael Collins, and you can find me on Twitter at EarlKing. The show also has a Twitter at This Is Your Mix. 
which is, you know, something that should have happened a while ago, but here it is now! You can also email the show at mixtape at megaphonic.fm. Hearing from listeners is nourishing. If you want to support this podcast, the best way is to leave a review on iTunes. That really helps a lot with the mysterious magic of the algorithms. Or you can simply tell your friends about it. Anyway, I hope you really enjoyed today's mix, and we'll see you next time.